So hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the fifth chapter, verses 36 through 39. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine in old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put in fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. And may the Lord bless that reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him for illumination. Our dear Lord, when we take your word the way we do and we divide it up into so many small parts, sometimes we can see the trees, but we miss the forest. I pray that you would show us the forest this morning. Show us the progression, the the importance of this particular passage in reference to everything that Luke has been telling us and what Jesus has been revealing through his mighty works and through his words that we would understand the nature of redemption, the nature of our own justification and the nature of your plan to redeem us and bring us back into reconciliation with you. We pray that that would be so evident to us this morning that we will understand how important it is that we get it right. And we ask it in your name. Amen. Human beings have an innate need to worship. We're made that way. It's in our DNA, if you want to look at it that way. Uh, Now, as much as the secularist and humanist would like to talk otherwise and say that, no, 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 that's just something we've developed. If you look around us, the whole world is involved in worship in some way. That's the reason there are so many different religions everywhere. If there was no need to worship, you wouldn't have religions. And don't let anyone tell you that humanism, secularism, or even atheism is not a religion. I mean, they've just elevated humanity to the position of worship, they're still worshiping, although they've just removed God from the equation. Now, if you do a survey of the world's religions and you, and you go through and you look at all of them, you'll find that they pretty much fall into one of two categories. Either they are religions of human achievement or they are religions of divine accomplishment. Now, when we talk about human achievement in a theistic uh, sense, what it means is that in some way or to some degree, we think that we, on our own effort or through our own achievement or by something that we do or some way that we are, that we can placate, satisfy, work our way to God, to have relationship with Him, to be reconciled with Him in some way through our own human efforts, our human achievement. Where a religion of divine accomplishment states that it is nothing to do with us as human beings. We had no part of it. It was God and God alone, and God did all of it. And He gifted it to us through His Son Jesus Christ. Now, what is so interesting with that is if you would look at all the religions of the world, including many flavors of so called Christianity that have fallen from the true faith you'll see that they are all religions of human achievement. That's the one thing that every religion on earth has in common 
except Orthodox Christianity. Orthodox Christianity is the only religion of divine accomplishment. It's the only religion that says God did it, we didn't. Praise God for his salvation. That's what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. That's why his atonement is so important. That's why his righteousness is so important. Now, the danger we have here, brothers and sisters, is this. Is that even though the primary religious um, activity on earth is a religion of human achievement, religions of human achievement cannot save you. It cannot make you righteous. It cannot forgive a single sin. I mean, you can placate yourself, you can make yourself feel good, but you cannot placate God. You cannot satisfy Him. You cannot do anything with your attempts at righteousness to stand in the presence of a holy God. And yet most of the religions on earth are religions of human achievement. Now, in our passage this morning, we see the first confrontations in Luke between those two issues. Now, it looks like it's Jesus on the one hand and the Pharisees and scribes and the disciples of John the Baptist on the other. But basically, underneath this confrontation is a confrontation between a religion of human achievement and a religion of divine accomplishment. And so we're going to see that. In fact, it is my contention that Luke has been bringing this out through the last couple of chapters. Now, I know I do this to you pretty much every week, and some of you are probably getting tired of it, but the flow is so important here. What I said in my prayer is be able to step back and see the forest here for a while. I want you to see how Luke has been building to this point. If you notice, this is a paragraph, and I divided the paragraph in half. And the reason I did that is because I wanted to isolate this discussion this morning because it is the culmination, I believe, of everything that Luke has been telling us since the beginning of the fourth chapter. If you remember, it started out with the temptations of Jesus in the desert. Now, what was the devil trying to get Jesus to do? He's trying to get him to accept a religion of human achievement. In other words, you can have all these kingdoms. Jump off the parapet and the angels will catch you. We can, in some way, bring about a messiahship without going to the cross. In other words, the divine accomplishment that is going to occur on the cross, we can make a religion that bypasses that. And that's what all of those temptations were about. And and, and then Luke began to tell us about the ministry of Christ and in particular, the good news that he was bringing. Guess what? The good news is the good news of divine accomplishment, not of human achievement. And Luke has been bringing that out little by little. First of all, we saw that it was important that Jesus said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God for this reason or for this purpose I have been sent. I mean, that's the reason that I'm here. Now, he's been working mighty miracles, and he's been doing all kinds of healings, but each one of those healings has actually revealed something to us about the nature of the good news. And if you remember the story of the leper, we, we talked about the righteousness that would be imputed through Christ. This leper was declared cleansed, just as we are declared cleansed and righteous by the cross work of Jesus Christ. Then we learned how important the forgiveness of sins was with the healing of the paralytic. And that it wasn't just a physical healing, that there was a disease that undergirded every single one of these, uh, of these symptoms. Whether it was disability, whether it was... Uh, deformity, whether it was disease, whether it was demon possession, or whether it was death itself, all of those have underneath it the problem of sin. 
And so therefore, Jesus and Jesus alone is the one who is able to forgive sins. And that showed us how important that was. And then, of course, the next we saw was Levi. And we, we discovered that it wasn't just physical symptoms that manifested themselves, that there was the, the wickedness of his career and of his life. That was also a manifestation of the sin that lay underneath. We learned that it was going to change. The good news was going to not only make this kind of change in individuals, but it was going to change the spiritual landscape of the world. We saw that in the miraculous catch which is just sort of almost an allegory of the, of the evangelistic outreach of the church. We saw in Levi and in the leper and in Peter, as a result of that miraculous catch, how important repentance was, that there was a turning around, that Levi got up from his table, left everything that he had, and just followed Jesus. So all of that has been important in revealing to us what the good news is. And it kind of led up to this image that we have in front of us right now. And the image I've been dealing with this couple of weeks is hugely significant because it's an image of Jesus sitting at table, actually reclining at table with the worst element of Capernaum. All the sinners, all of the tax collectors, and you name it, they're there. And Jesus is right there in the middle of it. Now, of course, we know that on the periphery of this group, all of a sudden the Pharisees show up and they've got a little bit of a problem with this because they don't associate with these kind of low lives. And so they start to complain to the disciples, how come you eat and drink with all these tax collectors and sinners? That's not what you're supposed to do. And, and, And that's when Jesus responded. And Jesus gave us just the first hint that we are getting in the gospel of how this is all going to take place. It's all going to take place because the bridegroom is going to be snatched away. He's going to be taken away before the festivities are done. And that's the first time we even got a hint of how the good news is going to be accomplished. It's going to be accomplished by Jesus going to the cross. That, brothers and sisters, is divine Um, accomplishment. Jesus is the one who is going to accomplish our salvation and not those who are on the outskirts who are complaining. Now, last week we saw that there was also a, uh, a second complaint, a complaint about fasting. How come you're not fasting? And we skipped over it last week, but we're going to move into it and deal with it this week a little bit more completely because that's kind of the foundation of the way that Jesus responds. But before we leave this, I want to make sure that you absorb this image. And not just in the way it is with Jesus in the middle of all these sinners, but the symbolic meaning of that. You see, when Jesus came to earth, and we can go back to the first couple of chapters of Luke and see the divine presence of Emmanuel. This is a picture of Emmanuel. This is a picture of what Jesus came to do. In fact, he's already told these self-righteous guys, I didn't come to call the righteous, meaning the self-righteous, to repentance, but sinners. I've come to call those who need a Savior and know they need a Savior because guess what? You don't need a Savior because you're already saved, quote-unquote, by your religion of human achievement, which, of course, we know won't save anyone. And so there's a very poignant uh, battle brewing here. It's almost like two football teams walking up to the line of scrimmage. They're about to go head on head, and, and it's going to continue all the way through the gospel until it finally drives Jesus all the way to the cross. And that is the, 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 the contention or the controversy between a religion of human achievement 
and a religion of divine accomplishment. So that's, that's the focus here. Emmanuel in the midst of sinners, he came to find his bride. Well, his bride happens to live in the sewer, folks, and that bride is us. And, and, and on the edge of the sewer, there's a bunch of sewer rats that think they're real pious, and they're saying, hey, Jesus, how come you're not doing what we do? How come you're not following the traditions that we follow? Because this is the way that we please God. Well, that's crazy because God is in their midst telling them that doesn't work. I have come with a brand new, uh, well, a a new and an old. I'll, I'll get to that later. Method of salvation or redemption, which, of course, is God himself handling it. Now, as I said, there, there, there was a discussion that started all this. And basically what it was, was when the um, Pharisees said this, the disciples of John, the Bapt- um, the, of John, meaning John the Baptist, fast often and offer prayers, and so the disciples of Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And last week, I kind of skimmed over that, even though it was very much a part of the, uh, of the passage, because I wanted to go down the road of the wedding feast, and I wanted to see the whole idea of Jesus as the bridegroom and how the, the, the sons of the bride chamber, it was ridiculous to think that they would not be rejoicing with the bridegroom at the time, and later on, there would be a time of mourning. We went down that path, but I want to come back, and I want to go down the path of fasting because that's the specific problem that these legalists, and you know what I'm going to call them? I'm going to call them achievers because it's not just the disciples of John the Baptist. It's also the disciples of the Pharisees, and that's too long to say every time. So what we're going to do is talk about those who believe in their own redemption through human achievement. We're just going to call them achievers because the achievers have attacked Jesus and his disciples because they're not fasting. Now, one thing we brought out last week is that does not mean that Jesus is breaking the law. It doesn't mean that Jesus is doing something wrong because in Scripture, according to the law, there is a single Old Testament fast that is called for. That is on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. That day is not today. So Jesus is not breaking any of the the scriptural guidelines. What he's doing is not jumping in with their traditions. Now, now, fasting has fallen by the time of Jesus to a typical external manifestation of a religion of human achievement. In other words, in the Old Testament, fasting actually usually occurred for a couple of reasons. And we looked at this last week just briefly. It it, it was for mourning when something horrible happened, some cataclysm happened. Well, people would fast at that time. And that's pretty much what Jesus was saying in his analogy. They're not going to mourn now while the bridegroom is with them. But the other reason for fasting, and probably one of the main reasons, was to grow closer to God. It was in association with prayer to, 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 to deny the body so that the spirit could unite more closely with God in a way. It was a way to reach out to God. And that's a good thing. I mean, that's where fasting started. But by the time of Jesus, it has become, rather than the means to an end which is what it was, the means to a closer relationship with God, as always happens in religions of human achievement, it has become an end in itself. In other words, fasting was a manifestation of righteousness. Why do I fast? 
to show that I'm righteous. Why do I fast more? Because the more I fast, the more righteous I am. The more brownie points I'm going to win with God and the more pleased he's going to be with me. Well, that's not the case. Hundreds of years before they started this, Isaiah said this, Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. In other words, it's a waste of time. It's a farce. You have turned something that has spiritual uh, value to it into something that is spiritually valueless because you have turned it into a term or a sign of righteousness. And brothers and sisters, whether or not you fast or don't fast, it, it is something that is so prevalent in modern Christendom today. Uh, the, the turning of something that is a good thing, like even praying or having faith in God. If I pray or have faith in God that he's going to accomplish something, but instead of actually praying and asking for his sovereign will, which is a good thing, if I think that through my prayer that I am going to force him to do something that I want, or because I fast over something and that will make him obligated to do something that I want him to do, then I'm trying to use that to manipulate God rather than to use it as a way to connect with God. You see how human achievement takes anything that is, has religious value and it turns it into something with no religious value whatsoever and actually a way that we try to manipulate God. Well, that's what had happened with fasting at the time. And that's the reason Jesus responds in the way that he does. And he gives us these three parables. You, you may think it's only one. In fact, Luke kind of presents it with one. If you look at the 36th verse, he says, and he also told them a parable. Um, uh, you can look at it as a parable with three parts. I'm going to call it three different parables because there's a nuance of difference in each one of them. Now, I want to remind you that a parable is an everyday story of, of everyday life that usually points out a single principle. We don't take our doctrine from, from parables. We don't get dogmatic about parables. We don't turn them into allegories and try to find a meaning for each part of them. Usually they have a single principle, maybe sometimes two. They can be applied in different ways, but we don't want to read too much into them. And so, therefore, these are parables that Jesus is telling in response to the achievers saying, how come you're not doing our traditions? You're, you know, this is not what we expect out of a rabbi with your reputation. So let's take a look at these, these three different um, parables, and we'll, we'll understand exactly what he is telling us as we go along. First of all, verse 36, he also told them a parable, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Now, one thing you'll notice about all three of these is they all three start with the same kind of a negative statement, a statement that everyone in the room would agree with, a proverb of sorts. Now, Jesus has already shown that this is one of the ways that he teaches. Remember when he says nobody calls a doctor unless they're sick, or that's not the way he worded it, but close enough to it. And then later on, he says, it's ridiculous for you to think that the sons of the bride chamber who are responsible for this joyous wedding are going to fast in the middle of the wedding when the bridegroom is here. No one would actually disagree with that statement. So no one is going to disagree with this statement that no one puts a, 
uh, takes a piece from an, a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. Now, what you may have noticed is that this is slightly different than the way that Matthew and Mark carry it. Remember, Matthew and Mark have a patch of cloth that is unshrunk that goes onto an old garment, and then when you wash it, the patch shrinks and pulls away from the garment, and the, the rip is worse than the first. So Luke is telling the same kind of an idea with just a little bit of a different twist to it. And, and, and you shouldn't worry about that. It shouldn't cause you consternation that Luke is a little bit different than Matthew. Because if you do, you miss the whole point of the Gospels. They're telling us stories, folks. They're telling us about what Jesus taught. And if they had written everything that Jesus taught, as John said, the whole world could not be able to hold all the books that would be written. And like any good teacher, Jesus will gravitate towards the same analogies and the same illustrations. He probably used this a thousand times in his teaching and also like a good teacher he'll tweak it every now and then according to the particular situation so you know the gospels are not a sequential set of events an autobiography this is what he said on this occasion they're telling us about Jesus they're revealing his teaching to us and so therefore Luke is going to tell it a little bit differently and and here's the mechanics of this first parable there's two garments An old one, worn out, threadbare, and then a brand new one. It's ludicrous to think that what you're going to do is cut a piece off of the new garment so you can try to patch the old. Because basically what you're going to end up with is two garments that you can't use. Just put it in a modern context. Uh, If you're like me, you've got a favorite pair of jeans, old beat up thread-worn jeans that are just comfortable to you. And what happens? The first thing that happens is they start wearing out, they get threadbare, and then a hole forms in the knee because you're always bending over. So you've got... Now, I'm not talking about the kind that you pay extra these days to, 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 to buy them with holes in them. I'm talking about the ones that you wore out, right? And so you know how ridiculous it would be to have an old pair of jeans with a hole in the knee to buy a brand new pair of jeans, cut out the knee... And then paste it on the hole that was in your old pair of jeans. That, nobody does that. What? And far better, throw the old pair away and at least have a new pair that you can use. That's the idea of the parable. Implicit in the parable is that let's just discard with the old because the new is so much better. Now, he's not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, so I'll get to that in the second parable. But basically what he's saying is that this new, and it's not entirely new, but I'm just going to put it that way for now. This new um, uh, religion of divine accomplishment that God is bringing to fruition right now is so glorious and so much better. It is simply not going to fit into the framework of first century Judaism and the legalism or even asceticism of John the Baptist's disciples. It's just simply not, we're just going to simply leave these, the, these religions of human achievement behind because this is so much more glorious, we're just not going to be able to use the old. That, that's the, the essence of it. And, and, and the point is this, and please l- listen to this throughout these religions of human experience, of, of human achievement cannot save anyone. There's no salvation. There's no forgiveness. There's no righteousness in human achievement. When are we ever going to learn that? 
When are we going to stop trying to interject human achievement into the religion of divine accomplishment? This is a religion that God created. It is a salvation that he brought to us. It is his gift. And we keep trying to make ourselves part of it. And all we do is mess it up. When are we ever going to learn that we, in its purest form, Christianity is a religion of divine accomplishment? divine accomplishment. Well, anyway, the second parable is very similar, but there's a nuance of difference to it. This is probably the more famous of the two. So let's read it starting in the 37th verse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Now, I would imagine most of you know the mechanics of this, but let me just flesh it out just a wee bit, just so you can form the mental image in your mind. He's talking about fermentation of wine, taking grape juice, or the, uh, the, the juice of the grape, and fermenting into wine. Fermentation is something that has taken a backseat in, in our day and time because we have refriger- refrigeration. But for the millennia that humanity exist- has existed on this earth, Fermentation has been the way that it preserved either drying out and salting or fermenting their food. They fermented wine. They would ferment vegetables. That's what sauerkraut is, fermented cabbage. And and this preserves it, a fermentation like kefir or, or yogurt. All of that is fermented food, and the reason it is done that way is because otherwise it will spoil very quickly. So rather than just try to drink up all the grape harvest at one time, they would ferment it into wine. And the way that they did that was to take the skin of animals. Can you imagine what the wine must have tasted like having fermented inside the carcass of a dead animal? But that's what they did. And they would carefully remove the skin, and then they would cut all the hair off, shave it real close, and then turn it inside out. And they would try to get as much of the arms and the legs as they could and as much of the neck. Usually a sheep or a goat. But I am told that sometimes they did use cows and calves and even the skins of camels. Can you imagine drinking wine that was inside a camel? Um, But nonetheless, they did that. I think that was kind of rare. But what they would do, they would treat the inside of the skin to, to, to make it airtight Fermentation needs to be anaerobic or all kinds of bacteria will, 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 will develop. And then they would sew up the, the legs and, and, and the neck and then turn it back outside in. Then they would fill it with wine. And as most of you know, when something ferments, if you've ever driven through a swamp uh, in the evening, you know that it releases a gas. And that's what causes the wine skin to puff up like a balloon. Now, skin is supple when it's young, when when it's fresh. And so, therefore, it's the perfect medium for that because it expands with the wine and, and with the gas. And they can let a little bit off and then close it up real tight again. But if the wine skin is old, it becomes brittle. And, and, and what happens is that when the wine begins to expand, as it always will, when the gas is given off, it cracks and breaks And all the wine spills out on the floor. Now, what makes this parable a little different than the first, and I think it's an important continuation of that, again, knowing that it's a parable, we're not going to read too much into it. But you see, there's the added idea that there's something worth preserving. 
That there's something that you'll lose if you try to put this into the old. If you try to put new wine into old wineskins, it's going to break the wineskin, but the wineskin's not what's important. What's important is that the wine is going to spill out on the floor. Well, the idea is that there is something about Yahweh worship that is worth saving. It has been corrupted by the legalism of human achievement of the Pharisees and the liberal, uh, liberalization, if you will, of the Sadducees or the asceticism of the disciples of John the Baptist. They have taken the true worship of God and they have, they have put so many restrictions on it, you can hardly tell the difference. Well, that's worth keeping. The Ten Commandments are worth keeping the moral heart of God is worth keeping Jesus is not throwing the baby out with the bathwater in fact he said exactly the opposite I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets I did not come to abolish them but what to fulfill them to perfect them to consummate them he came to bring them from old into new and so therefore there's something worth preserving and 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 that's the wine and that's the Old Testament heart of God that we see in times of David, times of Abraham, the covenants of old and all of that, that needs to be preserved, but not in the way that the Pharisees had wrapped it in all of their own traditions. Again, responding to what you have done to fasting particularly. Well, uh, beside that nuance of difference, the message is the same. We're just simply not going to be able to use the old uh, framework of Judaism to, to take the world by storm because that's exactly, I mean, let's go back to the miraculous catch. That's what's going to happen. We're going to have this huge degree of fish that are going to come in through the gospel. Now, that's not going to happen with Judaism. So therefore, we, we, we need a, a new wine scan because the new wine is so glorious. The old is simply not going to do. Now, the third of the parables is kind of the next thought. It's not repeating the same thought, but it's kind of the next thought in this progression. So let's take a look at it in verse 39. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new. For he says, the old is good. Now, what we don't know, probably just by reading that, is that that's a Phariseeism. That's one of their sayings. The old is good. <laughs> Did you see the movie, The Fiddler on the Roof? You know, remember Reptavia? Tradition, you know, tradition's a good thing. The old is good. Well, this was very much the mindset of Phariseeism. Our traditions, that which is old, that which has been around, it is a good thing. Now, I'm not exactly sure how this analogy played out in Jesus' day, but I know how it plays out in modern times. I think I can give you an, an, an accurate illustration of that. Back when I was a, a wine drinker, um, we used to look forward to the release of Beaujolais Nouveau. And if you know wine at all, Beaujolais is a region in France, a wine-growing region. And, and every year, about November, it always seems like it was at Thanksgiving that we would have it, um, th they would release what they call Beaujolais Nouveau. And Beaujolais Nouveau was allowed to, uh, to ferment only a few weeks, and then it was bottled and sold. And the reason they did it, I think it just started out as sort of a, of a, of a, of a way to pre, uh, preview that year's vintage of what the wine was going to be like. But then it became a tradition, and then people really looked forward to it. 
But you can imagine a wine that has only fermented for a few weeks. Well, it's fruity, it's very light, it's probably less alcoholic. I mean, it was, it was like a watered-down wine, but everyone looked forward to it because it was just so kind of light and fresh. But if you're a real wine drinker, you know, you might drink a bottle of that, but that's not what you're going to drink all the time. If, if, if you become a sort of an aficionado of wine, you look for the old stuff. Because if wine is treated properly and laid down properly, it increases in value and complexity and in taste and aroma and body over age. And, and a good wine that is 100 years old is extremely expensive and much better than a new wine. So... If you can afford the old wine, you get used to drinking it. And, and if you drink a new wine, it kind of tastes like wine-flavored water. It really doesn't taste like wine at all. So you say, well, wait a minute, that's okay, but it is good. My old wine is good. And, and you see, that's the danger. Jesus is telling us that there is an inherent danger with the religions of human achievement because... They're comfortable. It's like slipping into a, an easy chair, if you will, or, or putting on an old pair of clothes that just fits you right, that, or being with a group of friends that you really enjoy. There, there's a certain, I guess I can word, use the word seduction to human achievement. But I think we have to ask ourselves the question now is why is that so? In other words, here Jesus is, we'll try to reform that uh, graphic image a little bit. Here he is sitting in the middle of a whole bunch of sinners, and, and, and he has come as Emmanuel to seek and save the lost. And what he is saying is, I, I have got a, 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 a new religion or, or a new redemption. God is bringing to bear his plan of redemption. I'm going to go to the cross. We don't know that yet, of course, but that's what's going to happen. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to pay the penalty for your sins. I'm going to hang on the cross. My, your sins are going to be placed upon me. God is going to pour his wrath out upon those sins. They are going to be paid for, propitiated, expiated, taken away from you, and I'm going to give you my righteousness. Who on earth would say no to that? Who would rather say, well, no, no, I, I kind of like my, my religion of human achievement. And, and, and in fact, your religion of divine uh, uh, accomplishment makes me so angry, I'm going to drive you to the cross to get rid of you. Why would anyone do that? Well, I think this is really getting down to the heart, brothers and sisters, of who we are as human beings. And that's the reason this is a very vital subject. I think one of the main reasons is because we are just plain old, arrogant, self-centered humans. I know that people don't like to hear that. And, you know, we don't like to think of ourselves that way. But that's basically who we are. We like to be in control of our own life. I mean, that was the whole reason. That, I mean, that's what Satan was able to do with Adam and Eve in the garden. Remember, he didn't come and say, hey, listen, you're going to be a better person. Or you're going to uh, be happier or more fulfilled. No, he said, if you eat this forbidden fruit, you will be like God. And you will know the difference between good and evil. And you can be like him. You'll be the master of your own fate. You'll be the captain of your own ship. You will be in charge. And oh, if that caused them to fall, just imagine how easy it is for us to slip into that in our fallen state. Now I realize that's kind of painting with a broad brush. Because I do realize that many people who adhere to a religion of human achievement, either fully or partway, 
are quite faithful in the way that they go about it. The Pharisees certainly were very faithful in the way they went at their human achievements. So I, I think that there's something even more attached to who we are as humans. And I think that part of it is because um, there, there, there is such a premium that we put on human achievement. In other words, we admire it. Human achievement is a good thing, and, and we desire human achievement in all that we do. And we sort of elevate all of those who are achievers and those who are just simply lazy and don't do anything with their lives. Well, they're not considered to be the virtues, virtuous ones. But the ones who are achievers, the ones who do things, the ones who accomplish They're the ones that get books written about them or movies made of them because we admire human achievers. And so therefore, we just imagine that if we're going to do something good like be saved or like be in God's presence, then we have to have something to do with it. And for so many people in the world, it is a foreign concept that God would do it for us and hand it to us by grace. I can remember one time years and years ago, I was standing outside of the elbow room on A1A right there and uh, by the beach, and uh, we were stopping people walking down the street, uh, you know, at night trying to talk to them about Jesus. Probably not the best place to have a meaningful conversation with someone about Jesus um, outside the elbow room, but that's, uh, we were was part of an evangelistic program, and that's what we did. Um, and every now and then you would get people that would actually stop and talk to you. And and this pair of young ladies dressed to the nines, already a little bit on the tipsy side, um, they were walking down and sure enough, they would listen. And I began to explain to them how Jesus loved them and how Jesus had died on the cross for them and how how heaven was a free gift. And one of them, I could just see her her eyes, her, her, her eyebrows furrowing more and more the more I talked. And finally, she interrupted me and she says, wait a minute. Are you telling me that salvation is free? Are you telling me that grace is free? That God simply gives me salvation? And all I have to do is believe in him? And I said, yes, that's the heart of the gospel. And you would think that she would simply say, that's the best news I've ever heard. She got mad at me. She did. She got mad. And she, and, and she said, because if, if I did that, then I can just simply do whatever I want to. I don't have to be a good person. I don't have to try to be righteous as far as God was concerned. And, and have you ever had one of those conversations, I mean, this probably happened 20 years ago, that you wish you could repeat a million times? You go back over the answer a million times. I didn't answer that young lady the way that I should have the way I would now, because that's not the way it works. When you are saved by divine accomplishment, there's a change in your life. Uh, uh, Levi left his tax table behind. He had sold his soul to the things of this world, and he left it behind, and he followed Jesus. If there is no manifestation of righteousness in your life, if there is not a, a, a deep mortification when you sin, then you never got saved in the first place, because it is impossible to be what they call a carnal Christian. It is impossible to just simply say, well, I'm going to sin all I want to because salvation is free. That's not the way it works. Because when Jesus saves, he saves indeed, doesn't he? 
But nonetheless, um, I think that's one of the reasons that people um, have a trouble letting go of, divine, of, of human achievement is just because it is so ingrained into us. And, and the last reason, and I think this is the most dangerous, and I mentioned it just a, a little bit before, it's because there's a sense of accomplishment. There's a sense of satisfaction. There is such an allure to human achievement. And, and I was going to embarrass my daughter, Annie. If you're watching, Annie, I'm sorry for embarrassing you, but I do this to her all the time. Um, my, my, my daughter, Annie, is, is, is a marathoner. She runs those 26-mile races. Who on earth does that? I mean, seriously, who enjoys that or does it for fun? If you've seen them, they pass out, they throw up, they get sick, and, and, and that's supposed to be fun? Somebody does that? Well, I thought that until I saw a picture of Annie crossing the finish line at the New York Marathon. And you could just see on her face that self-satisfaction. I did it. I accomplished this. I ran the New York Marathon and I actually finished, okay? There is such a feeling of satisfaction, of, of, of human satisfaction that comes with human um, uh, achievement that it's alluring. I mean, why do people climb Mount Everest? Seriously. To get to the other side? No. Because they come right back down the way they went up. They, they, they climb it, risk their life, so they can stand on the top for a few minutes and say, I climbed Mount Everest. Human achievement. There is a satisfaction that will last for the rest of their lives because that's where they were. Now, the danger, brothers and sisters, is when we start taking that human satisfaction and start applying it to our salvation to our redemption, because there is a certain allure. Is I'm, I'm getting in God's good graces. I'm doing what he wants me to do. I'm a good person, and God's going to look on me and smile. When God says, your righteousness is nothing but filthy rags, that unless your righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, and they were squeaky clean, unless your righteousness surpasses theirs, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Because the kingdom of heaven is only for those who are saved by divine accomplishment. Now, what you may not have recognized is that even though Jesus doesn't say that, he doesn't say, okay, listen, you're not going to get saved by your human achievement. It's my divine accomplishment. Luke has been hammering you. This entire two chapters long, he has been hammering you to try to get through to you, at least the way I see this, that you are not saved by human achievement. It is all by divine accomplishment. I already mentioned the, 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 the temptations. That's what Satan wanted Jesus to do. You can be the kind of Messiah that everybody expects you to be. You can be a Messiah of human achievement and still have all these things and you can avoid the cross. But let me ask you something. How much of a part did the demon-possessed man have in his own exorcism? Zero. None. Zip. Jesus didn't even talk to the man. He talked to the demon. 
and cast the demon out. How much a part did Peter's mother-in-law have in her own healing? None. Zero. Zip. She has malaria. Probably delirious at death's door. Jesus simply healed her and she was healed. How much a part did the leper have in his cleansing? Now, you may say, well, at least he had enough to go fall down before Jesus and ask to be saved. Yeah, where did he get that faith? Who did the healing? All he said is, you can heal me. You can do it. And Jesus says what? I can be cleaned. In a word, Jesus. And Jesus alone healed that man. How much a part did the paralytic have in his own healing? None. Zero. Zip. And in fact, what did we learn there? We learned that it wasn't even the physical healing that was the problem. The real problem was the sin that was underneath it, the disease itself. And the Pharisees said it all when they said only God can forgive sins. Yes, only God can forgive sins. And Jesus proves that he has that ability to forgive sins. And so therefore, he shows you without question that that was a healing of divine accomplishment. How much did the disciples have to do with the miraculous catch. (laughs) Zero. None. Zip. Absolutely none. They quit for the night. They'd been out fishing all night long. They hadn't caught a single fish. They're going home and they're going to bed. Jesus made them go back out. That entire catch was from divine accomplishment. How much a part did Levi have to do with his own conversion? Am I making my point? Is there one example that Luke has given us in these two chapters of human achievement? And here come the Pharisees. Here come the rats in the, in the sewer saying, well, you need to follow our nice little way that we clean ourselves up as rats and make ourselves acceptable to God. And Jesus says, it's not going to work. That's the old wineskin. You're going to lose the wine. That's the old patch. And you're just going to throw that away and preserve what is good from the Old Testament. And we're going forward into a brand new gospel age. Not an age of human achievement, but an age of divine accomplishment. Brothers and sisters, not only are we seeing an epic confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees that eventually are going to lead him to the cross. Not only are we seeing an epic confrontation that exists between the church, within the church, between those who want to interject human achievement into our worship, but it also is an epic confrontation for each and every person who is seeking redemption. Each and every person who wants to be reconciled with God and the fact that there are religions all over the world and people are creating all kinds of gods and goddesses to worship tells us that there's a real innate primordial desire to worship and to have relationship with your creator. There is such a battle that is going on inside each person. And what Luke has brought to your attention, and I hope you pick this up, that you're not just sick. You're the demon-possessed man. You're Peter's mother-in-law. You're the leper. You're the paralytic. You're Levi who sold his soul to the world and the things of this world. You are that motley crowd that surrounds Jesus at that feast. You're not just sick. You're the walking dead. 
And there is no way that a religion of human achievement can fix what is wrong with you. Only the religion of divine accomplishment. What Jesus did on the cross for you. And what he did on the cross was to, first of all, pay for the sins. To go sinless to the cross so that God placed the sins of those who will trust in him upon Jesus. And then he poured his wrath out upon him. His wrath was satisfied. The legal requirement for punishment for your sins was satisfied. Because Jesus was a substitutional, sac- substitutional, sacrificial atonement, paying for your sins. And then glory of glories, because you still need righteousness in order to stand before God. He wraps you in his righteousness as if he puts his robe upon you so that you can stand before God, not with your own righteousness. It'll never work. That's why human achievement will never work. You will never be perfectly righteous. But Jesus imputes his righteousness to those who accept him as Lord and Savior. My dear friends, this is the, 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 the religion that works, and it is the religion that Luke has been teaching us about and will continue to teach us about. But you know what I think is the most dangerous aspect of a religion of human achievement is within the church. And, and the reason I say it is because of this. You, you see, the Pharisees are a great example They started out doing something that was good. I mean, to fast is a good thing. You know, if it's done correctly, if it's done for the right reasons, it's a good thing. And so they started out with a truly spiritual idea, but then the more they turned it into an end in itself, the more they lost touch with the, the reason that they were doing what they were doing. And brothers and sisters, that is the trajectory that we have seen throughout history. What we have seen is over and over again, just a wee bit of human achievement sneak its way inside the church. And before you know it, you have medieval Catholicism, where it's a partnership. Millions and millions of people think that this is a partnership between them and God. If you were here on, New, on Christmas Eve, you know that I preached a sermon then called Cur Deus Homo. Why did God become man? What was so essential? What was so important that God had to come man? Let me tell you something. God did not come man and die on the cross with your sins upon him so that he could show you how to gain your righteousness through a religion of human achievement. That's ludicrous. That's ridiculous. That would have never happened. If there was any other way for you to be saved other than... Jesus going to the cross, God would have done it. The fact that he didn't do it tells us that that is the absolute only way. And yet, continually in the church, we kind of form a partnership with God, don't we? We, we take things that we're comfortable with and we project them on Christianity. Years ago, oh, it's been quite a few years ago, Only a few of you will actually remember this, okay? Remember when the fellowship hall was really the fellowship hall, you know? Remember when we actually, we left here and we all went down to the fellowship hall and we fellowshiped after the service. (laughs) Brandy's laughing. Before the school took it away from us. Well, you know, it's it's, it's serving a wonderful purpose now, so we don't complain. But it was in the fellowship hall, that's how long ago it was, and, and a man came up to me and he was extremely sarcastic 
And he says, well, it looks like you're still not a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching Christian church, so you'll never see me again. I used to be a member here, and I left because you're just not a Bible-teaching, preaching Christian church. And I was kind of surprised. I said, whoa, I, I, I thought I preached on Scripture. He says, I didn't listen to what you said. I walked in the door, and I saw those drums are still up on the stage, and I knew that you're not a Bible-believing Christian church. Well, you see, what he had done is he had projected his personal preference or prejudice upon what it meant to be a Christian. Brothers and sisters, I hear that way too often. I hear people that, uh, that offend someone and say, well, that's not a Christian, so they must not be a Christian if they're going to do that. That's human achievement sneaking into your understanding of a religion that is founded on divine accomplishment. You're saved not because you're a good person, not because you are deserved it. You're saved because God knew you from eternity past and called you out of darkness. And Jesus saved you with his cross work. That's the reason you're saved. And it has nothing to do with whether or not we have drums on the stage. I'm as much a part... Of, of a desire for reverent worship. And you know that's usually important to me. But I, I asked him at the time, where do you see that in Scripture? Where, where, where do you see uh, two things where drums are specifically, specifically stated we don't have them and organs are specifically stated we do? And he didn't answer me. Uh, he He left. But, but nonetheless, there's a million different ways that we do that. And what I'm saying is, is we have to be extremely careful. Because it never starts like it ends up. There was a time that Presbyterianism was rock solid. There was a time that um, Episcopalians were rock solid. There was a time that Lutheranism was the very heart of the Reformation. Now, quite often, they don't even believe that Jesus was the supernatural son of God. How does that happen? It happens because human achievement just kind of sneaks in the back door. And, and, and you start thinking that certain things I'm going to take back, and after a while, rather than a means to an end, they become an end in yourself, and the next thing you know, you don't even believe in the cross because you don't need it because you've replaced it with your own human achievement. So... Let me leave you with this. If you adhere to the religion that I have just laid out, the religion that Luke is laying out, the religion that Jesus has laid out for you, if, if you stand up for that, if you stick to that, if you believe in that and teach it, don't be surprised if you find yourself in the middle of a war. Don't be surprised if a battle begins to happen, and don't be surprised if the ones who are perpetrating that battle in its most vitriolic form are within so-called Christian churches. Don't be surprised because it's happening all around us. If you stand for the scriptural sovereignty of God in election, be ready to be called a monster and someone who makes God a monster. If, if, if you stand for the scriptural religion of divine accomplishment, 
that God chose you from the beginning of times and called you out of darkness, that when Jesus went to the cross, it was with the full foreknowledge and plan of God that God sent his son to the cross so that he could be satisfied against your sinfulness than be prepared to be called a monster and making God to be a child abuser. That's the modern language today. God would be a child abuser if he sent Jesus to the cross. That simply didn't happen because God is good and loving and kind. He wouldn't do that. Then how else are you saved? You see, it's being attacked right at its very core. So therefore, you need to realize, brothers and sisters, that there is a historical trajectory that occurs when human achievement sneaks in the back door. So don't be surprised when the battle begins. But realize something. May it not be so with you. And may it not be so with this church. I can speak for the elders, and I will speak for myself, that as long as we have breath in our bodies, we will fight continually the onslaught of human achievement in this church and among the flock of this church. And it's constant. It constantly tries to get in the back door. You don't see it because you're not the one fighting it. You're not the one that is guarding it, but prepared that this is what happens. But as long as we are here, we will not ever slow down or stop or sleep because we will continue to fight against the infiltration of human achievements. And we will continue to believe and teach and live the religion of divine accomplishment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as you... Have, and I always feel that my words are so inadequate to express one of the most central issues. I mean, you, you, the billions and billions of people on this earth who are pursuing religions of human achievement as opposed to the minuscule number who are actually pursuing a religion of divine accomplishment tells us how vital this is how important it is that we know this, that we're able to stand against it, that we are able to guard against it, recognizing that we have an enemy that never sleeps and this is the way that he subverts the truth in churches and he is constantly trying to do it here. Dear Lord, give us the strength to stand against it and the discernment to see how easy and subtle it is that human achievement just sneaks in the back door. May it not be so here, Lord. May you give us that grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.